If you have a Bible with you or on your Bible app, would you turn to Matthew chapter 14? Matthew chapter 14. We have a, a guest speaker, a really a friend that we want to introduce to you. A couple of reasons why. First of all, we had, a, as Steve alluded to, we had an elders and wives retreat this weekend and just a wonderful time. I want you to be aware of that. We just so enjoyed being together Friday night, all day Saturday, to grow in relationship, in fellowship, in mutual care. Just a rich, rich time that flew by. And so it's very helpful to have someone else uh, preaching this Sunday. But I've asked Dustin Rudolph from Del Cerro Baptist to come intentionally because Joshua and I have really enjoyed getting to know Dustin and seeing what God is doing through he and his associate there in renewing Del Cerro Baptist in wonderful, God-glorifying ways. It's a, a church with a rich history that, that Dustin is bringing a, a renewed gospel and Bible focus. And it's exciting to see what God is doing. Del Cerro is one of the churches, when you hear us pray for local churches, they're one of the churches you hear us praying for in our pastoral prayers. So we're very grateful you're here, Dustin. Before you come, though, Susan's going to read our passage for us. So, Susan, welcome. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, would you please welcome Dustin Rudolph as he opens God's word with us. Now we get to see Grace Church. It's a... Pleasure to be here. I, I'm recognizing some faces here. I didn't know that I would, and that's a, it's an encouragement. There's, it's a good reminder of the um, the faithfulness of God, but also how small the gospel community is in San Diego uh, of, of folks. I guess East County. That's all I'm familiar with, really. But it's good to see you guys. Um, good to, to see a church that we also have been praying for. Let me begin our time pray in prayer as we start our sermon today. Father in heaven, we, we thank you that in your providence you've brought us together. 
We thank you that in your long ago providence, you raised these trees up for this day so that we would have shade. We know that you saw this day coming far, far before we did or the elders of this church did or anybody here. And we know that you are providing for us, your church, the church that you're building. And we are grateful to you. We're grateful to your word. And Lord, I pray that as we look to your word, that you would open up your word to us. Show us Christ in your word so that he may be all the more greater to us, that we may love him more, that we may trust him more, that we may grow in confidence in the grace that we have in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our church, Del Cerro, has been going through the, the Gospel of Matthew since November 2018, um, and we are right around now in chapter 16, and um, it, it's not been continuous. We have little breaks here and there, as I'm sure you do as well sometimes, little side sermon series, but the Gospel of Matthew has been really a blessing to me, and, and I will say that it has taught me how to read the Bible. Uh, I... I went to seminary, and I thought I knew how to read the Bible. And, and one of the, the issues that I had was that I was always in a hurry to get to the epistles. Uh, and, and what I found in studying Matthew's gospel is that the epistles are really just telling us what the gospels are about. And, and so I, I've really enjoyed Matthew's gospel, and I've increased in my appreciation for how to read carefully. One of the things we need to remember when reading the Gospels is that each of the writers is proving to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. And they're doing that, each one of them is doing that by showing us how he, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth fulfills the Old Testament. That's the purpose of the Gospels. If they didn't have that in mind, they wouldn't have written them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are all writing down the story of Jesus' ministry with that goal in mind. So remember that as you're reading these Gospels. So the reason that they choose some events from Jesus' life and not other events is because their aim in writing is to prove that he's the Messiah based on the Old Testament expectations. So we're preaching from Matthew, and you understand you guys are going through John right now. You're going to see some different angles on Jesus' ministry, but the goal is the same, and both of those writers uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit and led along by the Spirit, and, and with unique experiences and with unique audiences, are writing down from Jesus' ministry what they believe we need to hear that shows us he's the Messiah that the Old Testament promised. So, so for example, in our passage this week, Matthew tells us that Jesus walks on water. And in just those four words, Jesus walks on water, that tells us a lot about who Jesus is based on what we know from the Old Testament. So in Psalm 77, the psalmist Asaph says about the Lord, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Job, in Job chapter 9, verse 8, says that God alone tramples the waves of the seas. In Isaiah 43, the Lord makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. So just from those few Old Testament passages, the Lord makes a path through the waters. Only the Lord tramples the seas. Only the Lord makes a way in the sea. 
And here, Matthew's showing us Jesus walks on water. So, if Jesus is walking on water, then Jesus must be the Lord. Yahweh, creator God. But here's the thing. If Matthew's only aim was to tell us who Jesus is through these factual, evidentiary news stories, he could have shortened our text this morning, couldn't he? It could just be those four words. It could be the heading that you have at the top of your paragraph, if you're reading the ESV, or probably any other Bible. Jesus walks on water. And with that statement alone, a bullet point, we would have all the information available to us to be able to see all of those Old Testament passages that I read. And, and there are many more of those passages, and all of those are pointing to Jesus as Lord. But what I have grown to appreciate about Matthew, and the other Gospel writers as well, is they don't only tell us who Jesus is. Matthew, especially here in this text, he tells us what Jesus is like. So his, his aim, his goal in writing the Gospel, is not only so we would know who he is and what's happened to him, and, and that, that fulfills those Old Testament promises. Matthew's aim, rather the Holy Spirit's aim, writing through Matthew, is that we would know Jesus. And to know Jesus, well, we have to see how he interacts with people, don't we? We have to see how, how Jesus interacts with the people that he loves. So, so I want you to recognize the, the theological, big picture significance of Jesus walking on water. That sermon would go something like this. Jesus is the redeeming, promise-keeping creator God who has come in the flesh to bring his heavenly kingdom to earth. And that would be true. And that would be God-glorifying. But that's not the sermon that I have for you today. If we only came to that conclusion, only from this text, we'd be missing out on the personal, the personal nature of what God is revealing to us in Christ here. So let's just ask this question, what is Jesus like? What's he like? God hasn't revealed himself to us in an encyclopedia, has he? He's revealed himself to us in a story. And that story enables us to do more than know about him. It enables us to know him. So let's get to know our God and our Savior through this story, this true story. Let's look. I hope you keep your Bibles open or your apps open. Look at verse 22. And we're just going to go verse by verse through this. So stay with me. If you're at home, open up your Bible. Sit down with a cup of coffee, whatever you're doing. And let's open up God's Word. Verse 22, we see Jesus is like a shepherd. Look at verse 22. Look at the text. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus is the one doing the action, isn't he? Jesus compels the disciples and the crowds regarding what they are to do. Jesus gives commands and the people obey. It's very clear who's in charge when Jesus is around, no matter who is around him. It's always clear that he's the one in charge. He speaks with authority. He shepherds his flock. Well, what does that mean for those who know or who want to know Jesus? It's simply this. To know Jesus, to love Jesus, is to obey him. Jesus commands obedience. 
And I know for some of you that may give you just a twinge of discomfort, maybe a little bit of, of resistance or, re, or resentment. But I want you to do this. I want you to just hold on to that judgment, put a pin in it, put it, put it on the back burner for a little while, and let's keep reading. Because I think that you'll find that obedience to this man is not burdensome. Verse 23. In verse 23, Matthew tells us that the reason Jesus sent everyone away from him was so that he could go pray. You probably noticed that as we were reading. You see that in the text? He went on the mountain by himself to pray. Think of how Jesus is prioritizing prayer here. Think of the long day he's had. And think of all the other things he could be doing. He could be healing people. But he's praying. He could be raising people from the dead, but he's praying. He could be casting out demons, but he's praying. He could be sleeping. I, don't, don't you think Jesus deserves a little sleep after a full day? I mean, if you look back at what has just happened, he's fed 5,000 people. He could be sleeping. He needs rest. It's been a long day. He's exhausted. He is human. But he uses this time to pray. This is, as you read the Gospels, pretty typical Jesus. But have you ever asked the question, why? Why is he praying? We see it and we kind of think, oh, how pious. But why is he praying? Well, for one, and this is definitely true, Jesus prays because it is his delight to spend time with his Father. From eternity past, the Son of God has been in perfect communion with his Father. So it should not surprise us at all that his relationship with the Father would continue when the Son becomes man. But I believe there's more to it than, than communion with God. We need to consider what Jesus is praying for here. I mean, think about it. He starts praying at dusk. right? So he sends the crowds away, sends the disciples away. Maybe it's dusk, it's evening, evening has set in. And let's just, for sake of argument, say it's 7 p.m. All right, so 7 o'clock, we're in springtime in Palestine, that's about when the sun would be going down. Sends the people away, he goes up on the mountain to pray, and then he doesn't go to the disciples until what Matthew says is the fourth watch, which would be about 3 a.m. All right, so think 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. Prayer. Eight hours. That's, that's a lot of prayer, isn't it? And let's, let's say it's only five hours. Let's say, Dustin, you're stretching it a little bit. For, that's a preacherism you're making there. Let's just say it's five hours. That's fine, too. That's a long time to pray. How many prayed five hours in one day this week? I didn't. Um, you, you read about the Puritans and Reformers doing that, and I always wonder, how do they do that? And, and I'd love to grow in that. What is Jesus praying about for that long? Well, from what we know throughout the scriptures, especially the Gospels, we know that Jesus prays for a number of things. He prays for his enemies. He commands, pray for your enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. He prays for his own perseverance in accomplishing the mission that God has given. He prays for Jerusalem. But you also need to know that when Jesus prays, he's often asking the Father, to help the disciples, to give them faith, 
to protect them from sin. In short, he prays that they would be prepared for the day when he would no longer be walking the earth. And you see this, you will see this very clearly when you get to John, the end of John, John 15, 16, 17, you get this real clear picture of what Jesus is praying for. And I can't say this for sure, because Matthew doesn't tell us, the text doesn't specify, but I believe that given what's about to happen to Peter in Matthew 15 and 16, and especially for, for the question that Jesus is going to ask to the disciples in chapter 16, that who do you say that I am question, I believe that Jesus is praying for the faith of his disciples. Now why, well, who cares, right? Why, why is that significant? Well, you need to know this, Christian. Did you know that Jesus still prays for his people? He prays for you. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. And always means always. That, that means even now, Jesus is making intercession for you. His intercession for you is what is keeping you in him. He saved you through his death, but your saving faith comes as a result of his prayers for you. So, let's ask again, what is Jesus like? From just those first two verses, just two small verses, we see that he leads those he loves, and he intercedes for those he loves. Let's look at the next couple of verses, verses 24 and 25. We see that Jesus, in these verses, look at the text, Jesus goes to those he loves in their time of need. The disciples are in the boat. They're trying to sail into the wind and into the waves. Matthew says their boat is beaten by the waves, so they're having a, a, an awful time at it. They've been at it for hours. They're exhausted. They're miles from shore now, out in the middle of the sea. And look at verse 25. What does Jesus do? He goes to them. He goes to them in their need. And did Jesus have to do that? He could have walked by them, couldn't he? Have? He could have walked by them at a distance. He could have ignored their plight. They're tough. They're sailors. They're fishermen. They can get through this. He could, he could have hired someone else to take him across in a boat while he slept. Remember? He's probably tired. He could have waited till morning. But he goes to his disciples. After all, remember, he was the one who commanded them to go where they are to begin with. He loves those he sins. He goes to those that he sins. He does not abandon them. Verses 26 and 27 teach us that he comforts them. So he goes to them, and he comforts them when he gets there. Look. Look at these verses, and we see here, they see Jesus coming, and they're afraid. And you, you can sympathize with them here. Part, part of their fear is Jesus' fault, right? A man walking on water, coming towards you, that's not something you see every day. It's stormy, your, your adrenaline's already pumping, and you see a guy walking on the water, you're, you're going to at least be a little bit scared. The disciples don't have a, a category for what they're seeing. Right? In their collective imaginations, all they can think is, 
ghost, phantom. And they're terrified. Well, it's not a ghost. It's Jesus. We know that. Look at verse 27. And look at how Jesus interacts with his disciples. Matthew says he immediately spoke to them. So he sees them. They're terrified. And he speaks to them. What is the first thing that you and I need when we are racked in fear and anxiety? We need to hear the Lord's voice, don't we? We have the voice of God in Scripture spoken to us through the Spirit. The disciples have that in the incarnate Christ. And what they need and what we need is what Jesus gives the disciples in their angst. Immediately he speaks to them. doesn't wait until they recognize him. He speaks to them first. And look at the first thing he tells them. Look at verse 27. Take heart. Take heart. Now, if you, if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus says this a few times. This is what Jesus told the paralyzed man who had been lowered down through the roof to be healed by Jesus. He told him, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. And this is also what Jesus told the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And what Jesus says after take heart, we need to pay very careful attention to. Look at verse 27. In your English translation, it says, take heart, it is I. It is I. A more, a more rigid translation of that phrase from, from the original language into the English could be read as, I am. So take heart, I am. This is, this is what he tells the Pharisees in John 8, 58. Even before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, they got mad. Same thing here. Take heart, I am. Only the disciples don't get mad. They are comforted. Because when he says that, he's revealing himself as the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. I am, that I am. He's saying he's Yahweh, he's Lord. Not only do we know he's Lord because he's just walked on water, we know that he's Lord because he says it. So what's Jesus like? He comforts those, who love, those he loves. He comforts them. And it's not empty words. It's not, calm down, calm down, chill out, you're going to be okay. That's not comforting, is it? Who's ever felt someone comforting words of chill out? That's not comforting. He gives them a reason. He gives them grounding to be comforted. He reveals himself to them. He says, take heart, I am here. It's me, the Lord, the God of creation, your God. I am with you. And Jesus comforts us in the same ways. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He relieves our anxieties. He is present with us. That's the comfort. That's the comfort that we need. The presence of God, the forgiveness of God, the cleansing of God. Jesus leads those he loves. He intercedes for those he loves. He goes to those he loves, comforts those he loves, by his word and by his presence. Let's keep going. Look at verse 28. Now this is an interesting verse. What's going on when Peter, in verse 28, says, Lord, if it is you, command me 
to come to you on the water. Sometimes we hurry up and we get to the he steps out of the boat part. But think about this interesting statement that he's making to, to Jesus. What's he doing? Why does Peter want to go onto the water? Let's go really slow here. First, look at what Peter says to Jesus. He calls him Lord, right? And that's what Peter almost always calls Jesus everywhere in the Gospels. Doesn't necessarily mean that he's calling him God. It means that he's calling him Master, Teacher. He, it's what he calls Jesus. He is his leader. And so Peter almost always calls him Lord. So don't underlook that he does this in response to Jesus' voice. Peter knows Jesus' voice. He's heard him preach dozens and dozens and dozens of sermons by now. He recognizes that this is the guy that he's been following around, and so he calls him Lord. Now I say that because it qualifies how we understand Peter's request. He doesn't say, if you're really Jesus, then call me out. As if it's a secret password exchange. He says, Lord, which is to say, I know it's you, Jesus. Lord, if it is you, more literally, Lord, if you are the one who you say you are. Remember, Jesus has just called himself, I am. And I believe that's what Peter is questioning here. If you are who you say you are, then command me to come out to you on the water. He's not trying to verify that Jesus is Jesus. He already knows he's Jesus. Peter is trying to verify that this Jesus, whom Peter knows as his teacher and his master, is who he has just shown himself to be, the one who tramples the waters and refers to himself as I am. So through his request, Peter is verifying that Jesus is who he claims to be, Son of God. And at the same time, you have to understand, Peter remembers, whenever Jesus commands something, it happens. Nearly all of Jesus' miracles in every gospel comes about through Jesus commanding something. He commands Lazarus come out of the grave, and he does. He commands demons to be cast out of people, and they do. He commands that the paralyzed walk. And they do. What Jesus commands happens, and Peter knows that. So Peter, by asking Jesus to command him to come out on the water, is showing that he at least partially believes Jesus to be the one who commands something to happen, and it happens. He believes it. But he wants verification. So, so think of this moment, this exchange, as, as one of these, I believe, help my unbelief type scenarios. That's why Peter's request is the way it is. Command me to come to you. And so Matthew tells us Jesus obliges. Jesus commands him. Look at verse 29. Come. He commands that Peter come out. And this actually tells us more about Jesus than it does about Peter. Everyone in Matthew's gospel is trying to figure out who Jesus is. From the disciples to the Pharisees to the leaders of the land. They all are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Peter's not unique in this journey of discovery. But, but the way that Jesus so desires Peter to know him, the way that Jesus patiently bears Peter's weird request, it shows his love for Peter. So Jesus calls Peter for the second time in his life. Peter's first calling was, come follow me. 
listen, watch, learn who I am. And this second calling, this second calling here to come out is to believe wholeheartedly that Jesus truly is Lord. So Matthew is showing us here that Jesus will do whatever it takes to bring his people to faith. It seems like a leap, doesn't it? Well, how did we get there? Jesus will do whatever it takes to bring his people to faith. That's what he's doing with Peter. He's doing whatever it takes. If you have come to faith in Christ, it is because the Father and the Son and the Spirit have conspired to do whatever it takes to bring you into saving faith. If you're praying for someone right now to come to faith, keep praying. And keep praying and keep praying because our God will go to great lengths. He always goes to great lengths to bring his people to saving faith. He will do whatever it takes. So don't, don't be discouraged. Keep praying. The rest of verse 29 tells us that Peter, compelled once again by Jesus' command, gets out of the boat and walks to Jesus. And as far as we can tell, he makes it all the way. He makes it all the way to Jesus. Look at the passage. Matthew says he walked on the water and came to Jesus. But in verse 30, Matthew tells us, Peter's doubt took over. His doubt took over. For that span of time that he truly believes Jesus is Lord, heart, soul, and mind, Peter is walking on water, walking by faith, not by sight. But then Matthew says, Peter saw the wind. Look at verse 30. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now there's an old... I don't know what else to call it. It's an old kind of a trope that goes something like this. Maybe you've heard it. As long as Peter's eyes were on Jesus, he was able to walk on water. You might apologize to you. You haven't preached it like that, have you? Maybe you have. Okay. If you... <laughs> Last week's message. Okay. As long as Peter's eyes were on Jesus, he was able to walk on water. And if only you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll be able to walk on water too. And it, it kind of sounds nice, doesn't it? As if the moral of the story here is to keep your eyes on Jesus. And there is some truth to that. That is a biblical truth. Colossians 3.2 reminds us that we are to set our minds on things above. The heavenly reality where we are seated at God's right hand. Not to set our minds on things of the earth, but on things above. And through keeping our minds on things above, we are empowered to live in obedience to Christ. Because that reality is more real to us than our earthly reality. For a moment here, Peter, by faith, has truly set his mind on the heavenly reality, that Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. He's king, he's Lord, he's creator of all. But then Peter saw the wind. He saw the wind, and he saw his earthly reality. And that reality became far more real to him than the truth of who Jesus is. And that's when Peter began to sink. And that's what doubt is, isn't it? It is elevating our experiences, our circumstances, what we think we know and understand above who God has revealed himself to be. But I want you to see here, the point of this story even though there is some truth to that, the point of this story isn't keep your eyes on Jesus. And you can make it. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, you can do it. That's not the point. 
The point of this story is that Jesus saves. It's not, if only Peter would have avoided looking at the wind, then he would have been okay. It's not about Peter. It's not about you. It's not about me. You and I are going to look at the wind. I'm going to look at the wind. So long as we're in the flesh, we're going to look at the wind. We're going to elevate our circumstances above the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Our trials are going to become more real to us than Christ's saving work. At 3 a.m. last night, there was a mosquito buzzing in my ear. And it kept waking me up, and I would be about to fall asleep. Mosquito. You're about to fall asleep again. And that reality, that wind, was more real to me than Christ's saving work because I said things that might disqualify me as a pastor. But when that happens, we can all expect that we're going to doubt. And we're going to sin in our doubt. We're going to be like Peter, sinking. But listen, by the grace of God, your salvation doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on you. You see, you see, the story doesn't end like this. Peter looked at the wind and began to sink, and Jesus left in there and got to the boat. Bye, Peter. That's not, that's not how it ends, is it? Look again at verse 30. It's at that sinking moment that Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus, look at verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand to save him. So who, if you, if you are filming this, who's in the center of that shot? Is it Peter or Jesus? Who is the action, who is doing the action that Matthew wants us to see? It's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the one reaching out his hand. What does that tell us about Jesus? What he's like? Well, not only will Jesus do anything to get his people into saving faith, Jesus keeps us in saving faith. The compassion of Jesus, the love he has for those that the Father has given to him, it's so great that he immediately grasps a hold of Peter to hold him up. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus is like. It's no surprise then that when the one who tramples the water and calls himself I am gets back into the boat and the wind stops blowing, it's calm again. What happens then? The disciples fall down and worship him. Look at verse 33. They worship him and say, truly, you are the son of God. And friends, this is the only right response to Jesus. How can we respond in any other way? The one who intercedes for us? The one who comes to us in our time of need? The one who comforts us? The one who will do anything to ensure that our faith is securely in him? The one who rescues us and keeps us in the faith that, that he's given us even when we're drowning in doubt? The one who reveals God to us? The one and only right response to this Savior is worship. 
Truly he is the Son of God. Truly he is our Redeemer, our Savior, our King, our God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and thank him. Amen. Lord, we do praise you. How can we not? This is who you are. We can imagine no greater Savior. We're so grateful that this is not just our imagination, but this is real. This is our, our true Redeemer, our God, and we praise you, Lord, that you would, you would send him to us, even in our doubt, even in our sin. We praise you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.